Thank you for coming. It's a real pleasure to be here and to have this opportunity to talk a bit about uh, some of my work on income inequality. Um, I should caution you, this is going to be like a really visual talk, so I hope everyone in the back can see. Okay. Um, we sort of went through this a bit, and I think maybe a little bit is going to get chopped off at the bottom, but you uh, should be able to see the pictures. And let me begin just by um, taking a few minutes just to do some scene setting. I'm just talking a bit about the uh, broader context in which um, I situate this work that uh, I'm going to present. And, you know, my interest in this topic really begins with descriptions of uh, trends in inequality both uh, within and between countries really over the last couple of hundred years. You know, if we go back right to the outset of the Industrial Revolution, of course, most of the world was, by current metrics and um, standards, right, quite poor. And most inequality in the world distribution of income was attributable to income differences within countries. That is, you know, if we go back to the world of 1800, right, most of the inequality that we see was a result of inequality within countries rather than inequality between countries. Over the next two centuries, right, we see this great divergence uh, between the West and the rest, to put it very crudely, one in which um, global inequality explodes. Um, there are a variety of estimates out there, but you know, one reasonable ballpark uh, estimate is that um, um, over the period from the early 19th century um, through the 20th and the late 20th century, world inequality doubled. That is, um, income inequality on a world scale was about two times as large um, by the 2000 as it was in 1800. So simply put, right, for much of the last two centuries, right, um, one, sub one subset of the world's societies grew richer, while much of the rest of the world remained poor relatively and in some cases absolutely. Right. So consequently, income differences between countries uh, balloon to dominate the world distribution of income. And today, um, if we were to eliminate income inequality entirely within countries, right, if we were to take the incomes uh, generated in a particular society, divide it equally among the members of that society, do that for every, world, uh, every country around the world, um, world, total inequality in the world would decline by about a third. Right? So most inequality in the world today is inequality between countries, rich and poor. Now, around the turn of the century... Um, a number of scholars began to report some really interesting and exciting results suggesting a break right, in this long-run trend towards rising global inequality. And um, the two books here sort of represent my read, at least, or my take on the bounds of uh, what's likely um, in this case. On the one hand, we have Branko Milanovic suggesting that global inequality has effectively plateaued in the last couple of decades. Um, the demands of Milanovic's data are such that he can't go back very far in time, but if you look at the data that he has in which he attempts to approximate the true world distribution of income, um, what he finds uh, on the basis of a few data points is inequality sort of bouncing around within some range. On the other hand, you have folks like uh, Glenn Feyerbaum, among others, who suggest that, in fact, global inequality has measurably declined um, since the early 1980s. Why is the trend towards rising inequality moderated? Well, the break isn't attributable to declining inequality within societies. It's not because the average society in the world um, is growing more equal. As I'll discuss in the moment, um, the evidence suggests just the opposite. Rather, it's due to declining inequality between nations. A number of developments are, of course, involved, but you know, as we're all aware, uh, very important factors, very simply put, are countries like China and India. Right? We find that in the last few decades, China and the societies of South Asia have, have experienced income growth that's been faster than world average. This has meant that the average income in these societies, which of course contain 40% of the world's population, right, has moved um, to some degree towards the global average. And so this has a number of implications for us as we turn to think about what's going on with inequality within countries. Um, first, technically, you know, kind of purely technical point, it means that within nation inequality, which has been a declining component of global inequality for much of the last 200 years, is now a growing component. In other words, since the 1980s, the composition of global inequality has experienced a, a fundamental change characterized by the declining weight of, of between-nation differences and the growing weight of um, within-nation inequalities. Second, um, a more normative point, I suppose, is that you know, when we think about um, developments in countries such as China and India, we think about uh, couple that with um, rising inequality in a number of societies in the global north. Right? This is all regularly um, uh, referenced in the broader debate over globalization. Well, this research on global inequality um, reminds us, as we turn to consider what's going on within countries, 
you know, that our assessments of the welfare consequences of globalization um, are likely to vary pretty considerably depending upon the scope of those assessments. Right? Uh, for example, you could certainly make the case um, that recent developments in China and the U.S. are intimately intertwined, and in fact they are intimately intertwined in a number of ways. Um, and in a very real sense, and you know, I'm thinking of, um, for instance, a piece by a colleague of mine, Ho Feng Hung, um, that came out a while back in New Left Review, uh, you can make the case that you know, some fraction of the upswing in inequality that we see in the U.S. is just simply the flip side right, of explosive growth in China. Right? Um, growth in China that has likewise generated rapidly rising income inequality within China, but also, very importantly, right, moved tens of millions of people out of absolute poverty. Right? Now, continuing in the same big picture vein, right, what do we know about what's been happening with um, inequality within countries? Now, as I suggested earlier, right, the evidence indicates that um, inequality has been growing in the typical society in recent years. Um, there are a number of reviews of the evidence available in this regard. Um, you know, the latest was this Galbraith piece um, that just came out. Um, a few years ago, Andrea Cornia um, also provided a nice summary of the of, of the data, right, he's using the World Income Inequality Database, right, which is this uh, big compendium of um, the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of everything that we have on um, inequality. Looking at um, confining of analysis to the subset of societies for which we have the best data in the World Income Inequality Database, right, so in essence we've got, uh, Cornea is looking at uh, the experience of 73 countries um, containing about 80% of the world's population. The key findings are that inequality increased in about two-thirds of the societies that he examined. It increased in developed countries. Um, it, it increased in many developing societies, and no surprise at all, of course, um, increased in almost all transitional societies. Cornea also finds that the inequality upswing um, was non-negligible, right, being a, uh, five Gini points or greater um, in most of the societies experiencing rising inequality. Right, uh, obviously the Gini coefficient is not a natural metric, right? What does five Gini points mean? Well, um, you know, in a two-person two-person cake sharing game where you and I are dividing up the cake, right? A five, change of five Gini points means that the person who had the smaller slice at time one would have a slice that's two and a half percent smaller at time two, right? So depending on how hungry you are, right, and how large your slice was at time one, right, a two and a half percent change in the sl your slice of the pie, right, could be meaningful. Finally, the turn towards rising inequality appears to have accelerated over time in the sense that more countries um, are joining the set of societies that are experiencing rising inequality with each passing year since around, say, 1980. And so, again, we appear to be in the midst of this really interesting shift in the landscape of inequality. And one result of this has been the... Um, at a very general level, right, the replacement of one iconic descriptor with another. Right? As accounts of long-run trends in inequality have shifted from you know, the kind of inverted view of the Kuznets curve right, to the image of an uh, increasingly general U-turn right, on inequality. Right? 30 or 40 years ago, right, historical descriptions of trends in inequality uh, were dominated by the familiar image of the Kuznets curve. I assume that most of you have seen this before. Right? Um, this is what I've drawn for you here. Looking at a small handful of industrial societies um, in the middle of the last century, Kuznets thought he saw common features in their experience with inequality such that um, as they develop, inequality first rose, reached a peak, and then declined. Um, Kuznets thought he saw this pattern in countries like the U.S., um, in the experience of the U.K. over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and a number of other industrial societies that as they moved, Right, from being largely agricultural societies to industrial societies, they move through this sort of trajectory in terms of inequality, such that um, all mature industrial societies were arrayed along some declining slope of inequality with development. Now, the implications of this image for contemporary low- and, and middle-income societies has been a of course, a subject of regular recurring debate. Um, but you know, it, it is the case that um, you know, this is a debate in which we really don't have to take sides any longer. Um, and why is that? Well, one thing that we know today is that the industrial transition, right, the, or the shift out of agriculture into industry and services 
which was the central mechanism right, that Kuznet saw driving this process, that transition is rapidly drawing to a close. And according to the ILO, um, as of a few years ago, we had arrived at a situation on a world scale in which for the first time in five to 10,000 years, more people in the world today work outside of the agricultural sector than work within it. Right? And what does that mean for global inequality? Well, what it means is that, again, at a global level, uh, we're now beyond the point at which you know, dualism, for instance, um, between the agriculture and non-agricultural sectors um, should be driving inequality upward right, in this fashion, right, in a typical um, society in the world today. And indeed, um, the data do seem to bear uh, this out. Right here in this figure, um, I throw all the usual rules of uh, good practice out of the window. I just take all the data that we have on inequality from the late 50s and early 60s um, and throw it into this um, picture. All right, so this is data from the World Income Inequality Database. I take every observation that's um, in the wider data. I plot the Gini coefficient that wider reports against a measure of real GDP per capita. And then I fit a quadratic, right, um, the sort of relationship that Kuznets would expect us to see cross-nationally. Lo and behold, no surprise, right in the late 50s, early 60s, the familiar inverted U of the Kuznets curve emerges in these data. All right, no surprise there. Um, and if we do the same thing for every five-year period after this, right, mindlessly, right, not paying any attention whatsoever um, to the quality of the data, we can see um, how this um, Kuznetsian process sort of works itself out um, over the course of um, over the course of uh, the latter part of the 20th century and into the new century, right? So just again, right, again, classic Kuznets curve, then we can see, you know, what happens by the end of the century as the world society shift to the right, as average income increases, right, as most societies move well into the industrial transition. So we live in a world today, right, as uh, suggested by this figure, in which it's certainly the case, right, that rich countries tend to have lower levels of inequality than poorer countries. But we're also in a world in which many countries, rich and poor alike, are now on a trajectory of rising inequality. So just to very quickly sum up thus far, right, so we've got um, faster than world income growth uh, in big countries like China and India. Um, this has likely resulted in a break, and a kind of historic break, really, if you stop and think about it, right, in this trend towards rising global inequality. At the same time, within most countries, um, inequality has been growing, and within country, inequality is now a growing component of global inequality. And finally, you know, this sort of quick and dirty look um, at the Kuznets curve suggests that it's unlikely, uh, or it seems very unlikely, that this phenomenon has been driven by the sort of mechanisms that Kuznets was pointing to, right? Those relating to um, long-run development and the industrial transition, right? Most societies in the world are well into that transition at present. So what's driving um, this increase in inequality? Of course, right, there are a wide variety of explanations for this. Um, in my own research, uh, my collaborators and I have been attempting to kind of integrate and test three more or less um, distinct bodies of theory. In my uh, cross-national work, in my work on U.S. states and counties, um, we've attempted to combine attention to factors affecting the distribution of wages and earnings, right, which are obviously the, tra the terrain traditionally of economists, with um, a set of factors, um, a focus on a range of institutional, uh, demographic, and compositional factors, um, that shape the aggregation of wages and earnings into the distribution of household and family income. And what I present here is just you know, a lineup of, uh, selective lineup, I should say, of many of the usual suspects. I'm sure you've heard these, many of these arguments before. Uh, simplifying greatly, right, the way we sort of divide up the world, um, we see sort of three strains of explanation. Um, the first uh, literature just takes the fact, simple fact of rising inequality as its object. Right, and the principal hypothesis here is that um, wage inequality has been increasing as a consequence of skill-biased technological change. Right, there are slightly different versions of this argument, but in general, right, there's the suggestion that technological advancements 
have increased the demand for highly skilled labor. This demand has outpaced supply and has generated a whole you know, scarcity rents that uh, the highly skilled um, can capture. Second literature, typically oriented towards cross-national comparison, tends to take as its object the fact that, of course, there are these persistent level differences, right? Persistent differences in the level of inequality, right, between different countries in the world and different regions of the world. Um, and it investigates the heterogeneous inequality experience of countries and regions um, in the context, for instance, of some general process of technological change. Uh, here you find a variety of arguments regarding um, labor market institutions, right, deunionization, centralized wage setting, and so on, arguments regarding globalization, right, the effects of international trade, investment, migration, right, and the distributional consequences of a rave of both uh, domestic and international liberalization. Um, in this literature, there's even been talk um, in the last de- over the last decade or so of the emergence of a kind of grand unified theory, Right, um, or a theory of everything that's going to explain inequality trends um, as a result of the interplay of um, exogenous shocks right, affecting um, the supply and demand of labor and the stability of earnings, pairing that with the marked differences um, in the institutional context of different countries and regions. And so from this perspective, for instance, skill bias technological change might have uh, very different or even contradictory effects on inequality depending upon uh, the institutional context. The third literature, um, also typically oriented towards cross-national comparison, might really takes as its object um, household and family income inequality. As I suggest here, um, this literature in many ways echoes the comparative work on wages and earnings. It also suggests that contemporary inequality trends are shaped by factors like labor market institutions, um, globalization, liberalization. Where it's probably most distinctive um, is in focusing, for instance, on how sociodemographic factors right, the um, age distribution, the composition of households, assortative mating, right, and so on, how these sorts of factors generate inequality among households and families um, that is effectively independent um, of what's going on with wages and earnings. And the U.S. case um, um, nicely illustrates this point, right. Um, When we look at uh, the trend in family or household income in the U.S., what do we know? Well, we know that... um, on the one hand, the upswing in earnings inequality really didn't take off in the U.S. till the 1980s. At the same time, household and family income inequality rose pretty substantially across the 70s. Right? So household and family inequality was already rising, had already risen pretty substantially uh, by the time that an increase in earnings inequality took off in the U.S. And um, even during the 80s and 90s, uh, when earnings inequality was rising, um, our best guess is that change in earnings explains only about a third of the change in family income inequality. Right? So a big chunk of what's going on um, with household and family inequality, in, in the U.S. at least, is in some sense independent right, of what's going on with wages and earnings right, in the sense that it's, you know, it's related to how wages and earnings are aggregated up into households and families. Finally, Um, this last literature is distinctive in focusing on a broader set of institutions, right, Um, from cross-national differences in, um, you know, the presence of institutional veto points, right, uh, up to and including everything like, uh, you know, cross uh, different different conceptions of distributive justice, right, and how those affect um, inequality in different countries. Now, With my time um, today, I'm not going to actually attempt anything as ambitious as to argue why inequality is actually rising, right? Um, You know, I've done a fair bit of work on that uh, question. I've certainly drawn some conclusions about that um, from that research. But today I'm going to talk about a related question, um, and that's the question of how inequality is rising. Now, note that, you know, these accounts that um, I just very briefly reviewed you know, if you stop and think about it, they all imply fairly specific patterns of distributional change, right? While at the same time, really predicting the same outcome in, the be- in terms of the behavior of summary measures, in terms of, you know, what do they predict in terms of the, what's going to happen with the Gini coefficient or the coefficient of variation, right? 
For instance, right, the argument for skill-biased technological change um, and the argument uh, for deunionization in the U.S. context, um, they both predict an increase in the Gini coefficient. Right? Uh, but it's an increase driven by a different pattern of distributional change. On the one hand, at least some versions of the technological change argument or skill-biased technological change argument are really about um, explosive growth of incomes on the very top. The argument about deunionization is about um, uh, the hollowing of the middle, right? formerly middle-class households that owing to deunionization have now shifted towards the bottom. Right? So both arguments right, suggesting taking as prima facie evidence right, an increase in Teal's inequality or the coefficient of variation, right? but uh, very specifically right, um, predicting different patterns of distributional change. So a more fundamental question um, thus concerns you know, exactly how the distribution of income is changing, you know, what's going on in essence behind the summary measures, and whether or not um, societies that are experiencing rising inequality Right, these three-quarters of the societies that Cornea picks up and the larger proportion that's picked up in the recent Galbraith piece, um, whether or not societies are, that are experiencing rising inequality are in fact experiencing similar patterns of change. Right? Now, there are other reasons for considering um, the how question. For, uh, for instance, right, I mean, simple reasons of economy or efficiency. Um, think for a moment about how scholars in this area typically proceed. Um, in much of this literature and much of my own work as well, right, so I'm guilty as charged, right, what do we do? Right, we begin. Right, we begin by looking at the behavior of summary measures. Right? So what does the Gini coefficient look like? While we're at it, let's look at other summary measures that are sensitive to transfers at different points of the, distrib of the distribution. Let's look at descriptive measures based on quantiles. Right, so let's look at this uh, host of summary measures. And having done that, what do we do? Well, we quickly move on um, to examine the conditional association between the variance, right, or the quantile ratios, and a set of covariates in a regression framework. Now, that's a perfectly sensible way to proceed, I suppose. I mean, the results of this yield are um, you know, often revealing and important. However, um, I think it is worth noting that in proceeding in this fashion, what are we doing? We're effectively throwing away a lot of the information that we have right, about the distribution of income. And what's the alternative? Well, you know, in the last decade or two, um, a number of scholars engaged typically quite directly with this you know, problematic of rising inequality. A number of scholars have developed a variety of... Um, Techniques that enable one to exploit more of the available information, right? That enable one, in essence, to kind of look behind um, the summary measures to examine how the distribution of income is changing. Economists have been very much at the forefront um, of these developments, um, but sociologists, as they indicate here, have also been involved. Um, I come to this question right, as a sociologist, and in fact, um, disciplinary boundaries being what they are, I suppose. Right? This is the sort of approach that I've uh, pursued, the approach developed by uh, the sociologist Martina Morris and um, her partner, the statistician Mark Hancock. In their work, um, they develop a set of methods uh, based on what they call the relative distribution, which is something I'll define for you practically here in a moment. But their approach is one that... Um, actually combines a number of the nice properties of other approaches, um, and it presents a general framework that, um, at least I hope you agree when this is all done, um, enables us to um, describe dif distributional change, right? Really, you know, enables uh, and facilitates the description of distributional change. It also um, enables the construction of summary measures, of any manner, right, um, that are sensitive to any pattern of distributional change that you would care to um, quantify, and allows for the comparison of compositionally adjusted distributions. Right? Now, today, I am actually going to talk only about how we've applied these methods to the first two um, ends that I've detailed here. Now, to introduce our application of these methods, um, let's consider um, the question of you know, what happened in the Czech Republic in the first year, few years after the end of communism and the partition of Czechoslovakia? 
Why the Czech Republic? Well, it's, it's a really tractable case if you stop and think about it, right? It's a fairly straightforward case, right? What happened in the Czech Republic, as in lots of other transitional societies? Well, there are a range of really tangible, obvious, distinctive institutional changes that occurred, right? And obviously played a heavy role in reshaping the distribution of income and did so in really predictable ways, right? Um, so... Let's take the case of the Czech Republic as an illustration. And what you see here in this figure are two probability density functions. The blue line, can you actually distinguish the blue from the red, I hope? All right, the blue line um, is the distribution of household income in 1992, and the red line is the distribution um, in 96. I should mention that um, these data and all of the data that I'll present going forward, they come from the Luxembourg Income Study and um, are in the form of equivalent net disposable Household income. That is, the uh, list provides household um, income, income inequality, income data, and we adjust for household size using a standard equivalent scale. Right? Now, looking at this figure, um, you know, we can note a number of different uh, differences between the two distributions, right? But um, two things that jump out is that, you know, the 96 distribution, obviously the central tendency is different. Right? And the 92 distribution has a much greater variance. 96 distribution right, has a much greater variance than the 92 distribution. Now, the basic idea behind relative distribution methods is really simple. Um, and hopefully you'll, you'll find this simple. Right? It's really simple. What's the idea? Well, it's to take the values of one distribution, right, which we'll call the comparison distribution, right, and express them as positions in another the reference distribution, right? So take the values of the 96 distribution and express them as positions, in this case, in the 92 or reference distribution. Right, to illustrate um, the, the, the method, let's just drop two lines um, from, these from this distribution. Right, first let's drop a line um, at the median of the 96 uh, distribution. And then let's take note, um, A sub C, Right, of the density of the 96 distribution at that point. And then let's also take note A sub R of the density of the 92 distribution at that same income. Right? Second, let's drop a line at the point where the two distributions intersect, right? which is about uh, 6.5 log kroner. Right? And then again, let's take note of the density of the two distributions, B sub C and B sub R, which of course are the same, right, 0.74. Now, with this information, right, doing this um, across the distribution or across the scale of income, right, with this information, we can form um, a relative PDF, right? And I'll show you a bigger version of this in a second, so you don't need to squint so much. Um, which is simply what? What is it? It's simply the density ratio um, at each quantile of the reference distribution, so the density ratio at the median of the 96 distribution, right, 0.87 divided by 0.82, 4.4. What does that mean? Well, by 1996, there were 4.4 times more households at this point on the 92 distribution than there were in 92. What point is that? Well, at about the you can't see that at about the 95th percentile, right, of the um, 92 distribution. At the point where the two distributions intersect. Right um, at uh, about 6.5 log kroners. Right, uh, what's the density ratio? Well, obviously it's one. What does that mean? That means the proportion of households at that point in 92 is the same um, as in 96. What point was that? Well, at about the 81st percentile, right, of the 92 distribution. This may make it a little better, a little easier to see, right? Um, <coughs> So when the relative density right, is less than one, what does it mean? It means that there are fewer comparison observations at this point on the distribution than on the reference distribution. Specifically, in this case, there are fewer households at any point below one um, at, the, on the 92 at that same point of the 92 distribution in 96. Right? When, the relative when the relative distribution is greater than one, this means that there are more comparison observations at that point on the reference distribution. 
So the relative data, what are they? Well, they're simply the quantile rank of the comparison year value in the reference distribution. Now, with that bit of background, um, when we look again, let's go back again to just looking at the data for a moment. It's clear, again, there are two things going on in the first few years after uh, the end of communism, the breakup of Czechoslovakia, um, things which pertain directly right to the first two moments of the distribution. Right? First, um, there's a change in location. Right? The expected value um, shifts to the right. Second, um, there's a change in shape. Right? The comparison distribution has obviously greater variance than the reference distribution. We could, um, for instance, consider higher order moments. We can consider uh, kurtosis or skewness, right? But I'm not going to talk about that today. Right? Just talking about the first two, bo- first two moments, right? The expected value, right? And the variance. So what we want to do, noting that those are two obvious features of change, of change of the distribution over time, what we want to do is we want to isolate um, that portion of distributional change that occurs owing to changes in location, right? a shift in average income, and that portion that occurs owing to changes in the shape of the distribution over time. Now, to do so, um, we take the overall relative distribution, right? and in fact, this is the same figure, right? just as, as earlier, right? now just represented in terms of um, Deciles, just to ease the interpretation of the discussion. Right? We take the relative distribution, the overall relative distribution um, for the Czech Republic, and then we cancel out um, differences in shape between the two distributions to isolate um, the change in location, right? the shift in the central tendency. And then, similar logic, right? we cancel out changes in location to identify the changes in shape. So what can we say um, about the Czech Republic in the early years of the transition? Well, the location shift here, right, um, which is clear enough from the above, obviously, right, the location shift here um, indicates there was obviously a shift in median household income, right, lots of households, um, on, a, you know, on average, households shifted up in terms of nominal income, obviously, um, but, however, when we look to the shape shift, um, we see that in the course of that upswing in nominal incomes, right, some households um, moved up and other households fell behind. I'm actually doing that backwards, right? Some households moved up, right, as median income shifting, nominal incomes are shifting up. Some households shifted up faster than the nominal income, and some households fell behind in the course of that shift, right? And that's what's captured here, right, um, in this shape shift. So when we focus in on the shape shift, right, what are we doing again? We're just simply canceling out the changes in location and fitting the 96 data to the 92 quantile cut points. Doing that, we can address really directly and transparently the question of how inequality grew in Czech Republic, right, immediately after the transition. We can see that, in fact, right, the distribution of household income grew more polarized, Right. Roughly, uh, you know, something over 40% more households by 96 had an income that um, would place them in the first decile of the 92 distribution. More than 60% of households shifted up. Right, it's obviously not longitudinal data, right? It's cross-sectional data, but figuratively, right? More than 60% of the households shifted up, right, to join the ranks of those whose median adjusted income would put them in the first decile in 92. In the middle of the distribution, right, there were fewer households right, at that same location. So what happened in the Czech Republic between 92 and 96? Right, the distribution of income grew more polarized. Right? Some households shifted up. Others fell behind, if you will. Now, in this next figure, right, I show you the change in the Gini coefficient um, in two versions of the Atkinson Index over the same period from 92 to 96. And I do this just to belabor, I hope, belabor at this point the bottom line. Right? What are we looking at with the shape shift here at right? Well, what we're looking at is exactly the pattern of distributional change that's occurring behind 
right? This increase in the Gini coefficient by about five points. Right? It's exactly the pattern of distributional change that's occurring behind these changes in the Atkinson index. <clears throat> so by the Gini coefficient, inequality grew right after the transition from communism. Um, how did it grow? Well, the figure at right tells us how it grew. As I mentioned, another nice feature um, of, these, of this approach is that once we have the relative data, right, um, we can use it to examine the contributions of distributional change made by different segments of the distribution and develop measures to numerically summarize these such changes. Now, you could do a number of different things in this regard, again, with the relative data, but consider the really straightforward problem um, that Hancock and Morris addressed um, in their own work. And that uh, problem is that, you know, the usual scale invariant measures of inequality, right, the Gini coefficient, the coefficient of variation, um, are obviously not designed to distinguish, right, um, uh, between different types of um, change in inequality, right? They aren't designed to distinguish between growth in the upper lower tails or distinguish polarization from pure upgrading or pure downgrading, right? Um, when such measures uh, register increasing inequality over time, you can't distinguish between um, uh, different scenarios for the increase in inequality, right? You can't distinguish the sort of polarization that we saw in the Czech Republic from a pattern in which, well, some people just are shifting up, right? Or from a pattern in which, you know, a large number of people are shifting down, and that's all that's happening, right? And in fact, right, much of the substantive and theoretical debate actually turns on this level of detail, of exactly, you know, how um, the distribution's changing rather than on the extent of the overall increase in inequality. So to give you a sense for what can be done in this regard, I mean, we can consider um, the polarization indices that um, Hancock and Morris have developed for the relative distribution. Um, what they call the median relative polarization index, um, or MRP, is, you know, the general form, takes a general form that you see here, um, where the relative distribution, right, again, the density ratio at a given level of income is weighted by its distance um, from the median of the reference distribution. So in essence, what they're doing here is they're emphasizing uh, mass in the tails more than mass in the center, right? So it's a measure of polarization. Uh, the index varies between zero and uh, negative one and one, with zero suggesting you know, uniform relative distribution. There's no change, uh, but over time in the, in the shape of the distribution, uh, positive values um, sig indicate polarization, right, growth in the tails. Negative values indicate convergence towards the center of the distribution over time. You can take the MRP and decompose it into the contributions to distributional change made by the segments of the distribution above and below the median, right, the lower relative polarization index capturing changes below the median, the upper changes above the median, um, and they decompose... Um, form a linear decomposition of the, of the MRP in the fashion that you see here. Theoretical range of both, again, negative one, two, one. Now, returning to the case of the Czech Republic, right, we can compare, um, you know, our sort of standard summary measures of inequality to what we see with these polarization measures. Again, just as... Um, a way of getting a numerical summary of what we see in the shape shift and as a way of sort of checking our um, eyeballing of the figures, right? So by the MRP, right, the MRP is positive, indicating polarization, right? Obviously, we see that here. Also, consistent with what we see, um, growth in the upper tail, right, dominates growth in the lower tail. Now, in earlier work using these techniques, um, we examined the experience of, um, we started off by looking at um, high-income societies only, and we were looking at data from um, the late 70s through the 1990s. Um, most recently, you know, what we're working on right now in this regard is that we're incorporating the latest wave of data um, from the Luxembourg Income Study, some of which I show you here. So by incorporating wave six of lists, um, what we're looking at really is the evolution of the distribution of income in a number of societies um, from the late 1970s um, through to um, the middle of the last decade. Right? And so here we're looking at UK, US, Sweden, and Germany. 
We've also, um, and I'll come back to this figure in a second, we've also um, expanded our investigation to include a number of um, uh, transitional and middle-income societies that are in lists or have recently joined um, lists. Um, so we're looking at countries like, obviously, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, um, Russia, Taiwan, um, among others. Um, here, not necessarily keyed to the wave one, wave, wave six dis distinction, just taking the longest period uh, for which we have data, right? And, of course, you can apply these methods to any periodization that you would like, right? I mean, all we're doing is looking at, the, at this point, um, for purposes of presentation, just the longest period that we have. So what do we find? Well, um, I guess you can kind of make sense of this. Um, well, this figure that we looked at earlier um, actually provides a nice summation of um, what we're finding more generally. And what we're finding is that, you know, where inequality has increased um, and increased most substantially, it's generally increasing via a process of polarization, right, a kind of hollowing of the middle, if you will. In other words, right, rising inequality hasn't simply been the result of growth in the upper tail. Right? It hasn't simply been the result of the kind of you know, explosive growth of very high incomes like we've seen in the U.S., right? the, the Piketty and Say stuff. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a big part of the story, but that's not the entire story by any stretch. Right? So we certainly see growth at the top, but we also see growth at the bottom, right? um, where we see inequality increasing. However, the experience of um, list countries, and here you know, we're limited to the, you know, uh, the list data in terms of, you know, uh, as a data source, right? Um, where the experience of list countries, um, you know, the countries for which we have good data, I mean, the experience actually is pretty heterogeneous, right? Um, in the UK and US, um, where the increase in inequality, right, by, um, you know, the Gini coefficient has been the most substantial, right, over this wave one, wave six period, um, We've got a situation in which, um, you know, the shift from um, the middle to the upper tail has actually been more pronounced than the shift towards the middle to the bottom, right? So we've got polarization in the U.S. and U.K., right? It's not just a story of upgrading of, this, you know, of these super high incomes of people in the city or on Wall Street, right, uh, and the hedge funds, right? It's not, that's not the whole story by any stretch. There's also a significant bit of downgrading going on over the last couple of decades, um, in Sweden, in contrast, um, inequality, uh, the increase in inequality over this period was obviously more modest um, and starting from a different level, right? Um, but, um, you know, across the wave one, wave six comparison, um, growth in the lower tail was actually um, somewhat more pronounced than growth in the upper tail. Right? And, um, again, you know, the case of Germany, again, slightly different, right? Um, you've got... Um, some growth in the middle of the distribution, um, you know, declines in uh, surrounding uh, quantiles, and then you've got some growth at the top and growth at the bottom, right? And in the case of Germany, right, when we look at, the, at the Germany by the Gini coefficient, right, experienced an increase in inequality that was only half as large, right, as that experienced by the U.S. or U.K. over the same period. Um, but in Germany, we find that, um, you know, the shift of households all the way down, right, to the first decile, Right, was actually more pronounced in Germany than it was in the U.S. or U.K. Right. Now, in addition um, to expanding and updating our work on the kind of basic descriptors, sort of in this vein, we've also been looking at the experience of households in different social locations, um, locations that are regularly discussed um, in the literature on household and family inequality. And what we're finding in this work um, is, in terms of the grand conclusions or bottom line conclusions, is actually pretty similar um, surprisingly or not, I suppose, depending on how you're coming at this, um, there's a good bit of cross-national heterogeneity within um, and between demographic groups that are often treated as effecti effectively interchangeable right, in cross-national research. Right? So to illustrate just you know, one of the things that we've been working on, just fix in your mind for a moment you know, what happened in the U.S. and U.K. Right? between the late 70s and into the middle of the last decade. And then um, think for a moment about um, how, uh, or think for a moment about um, uh, the, what the literature has to say about changing household composition and the contribution of changing household composition to um, this pattern. 
In the U.S., right, the case at least, right, the growth of female-headed households, for instance, has regularly been observed to be a you know, fairly major culprit um, in the upswing in income inequality among households and families. Um, but, you know, how much, um, know, how is the distribution of household income among female-headed households, for instance, how has that changed over time? Um, how do these households, where do these households fit in some sense relative to other types of households? Um, and how does that differ from one country to the next? Right. Now, on this next slide, um, I show you how we've begun to address these sorts of questions. We look at, uh, for instance, female-headed households, um, defined um, simply as households containing only women and minor children. Right. In the U.S. and U.K., uh, for the purpose of illustration, and here what we're examining is how the shape of the distribution of income between such households changed between waves one and wave six, or between the late 70s and the middle of the last decade. Now, as you can note, um, it's Time up. <laughs> as you can note, um, and I'm almost done. Uh, as you can note, we find that um, you know in the UK case, right? What's happened? Well, female-headed households um, have converged towards the centre of the 79 distribution, right? So the distribution of income among female-headed households is less unequal by 2004 than it was in 1979, right? So these households are looking more and more alike over time. Um, in the US case, um, you know, it's just the opposite, right? You've got um, you know, some movement um, at the, to, to the top of the distribution over time, and then a lot more movement to the bottom of the earlier 79 distribution. Right, so the UK, female-headed households looking more homogeneous, less inequality among such households over time, in the US, divergence. Right? Now let's also look at female-headed households, and then let's ask, well, how do they differ in shape from other sorts of households? Um, in this figure, we can compare um, such households to households containing um, couples and their children, only couples and their minor children. Right? So female-headed households um, fit, put them in the distribution of income among households um, containing couples and their minor children. And we do this in wave six, right? So this is for 2004. Again, right, um, there's a difference, right? Um, so what we find is that the distribution of income among female-headed households in the UK is actually more homogeneous than the distribution of income among households containing my, uh, uh, couples and their minor children. Right? There are fewer female-headed households at the top of that reference distribution, and there are fewer female-headed households at the bottom of this distribution. Right. In the U.S., in contrast, the distribution of income among female-headed households, we know it's been, as we saw earlier, right, it's been polarizing over time. Um, and it's also more polarized relative to the distribution of income among households containing couples and their children. Right, so these differences between the U.K. and the U.S. would seem to have a, you know, number of implications, but the most obvious is that female-headed households, in a very real sense, seem to be different animals, right, in one context versus the other. In the UK, right, they look increasingly similar over time and um, look increasingly homogeneous relative to other households containing children. In the US, right, they look increasingly dissimilar over time and look increasingly dissimilar relative to other households containing children. In other words, um, you know, they would see, so we've got this situation where polarization on one hand, right, um, converges towards the middle on the other. Now, another work, uh, very quickly, I mean, we're examining the changing shape of households at different levels of educational attainment, um, edu occupational attainment, examining how the shape of the distribution of income among such households has um, changed over the last two decades. Um, in the interest of time, I won't say anything more about this uh, other than to make the most elementary point that what we're finding, again, suggests systematic differences between countries um, that, uh, such as the U.S. or U.K., that, um, you know, in the broad scheme of things are often cast as relatively similar, right, culturally and institutionally. Now, by way of a conclusion, then, let me just um, briefly summarize what we're finding, right? So... How is inequality growing? Um, when we look at the experience of a range of societies, 
we find that you know, rather than solely being the story of a kind of upgrading, right, of the movement of a fraction of households into the upper reach of the income distribution, you know, owing to skill bias technological change, um, owing to the growth of winner-take-all markets, um, owing to the relaxation of institutional pressures that had previously compressed the top of the income distribution, right? most obviously in the case of the post-communist societies. Right? Rather than solely being a story of upgrading, uh, it's been one of polarization. At the same time, the experience of these countries isn't homogeneous. When we decompose such polarization, the contributions of the upper and lower tails, we find that some, in some countries, growth in the upper tail has outpaced growth in the lower tail or bottom tail, but in other countries, we find just the opposite pattern. Finally, and more generally, um, I hope that um, you know, I've demonstrated that it's useful to at least occasionally look behind the summary measures, right? to actually examine the, pattern of the actual pattern of distributional change. Right? If we focus right, on the comparison between income distributions rather than on their individual shapes, well, we're forced um, to be pretty precise. I think, um, about exactly how different factors affect inequality. Um, you know, what we find, for instance, regarding um, you know, female-headed households in, in, the, in the U.S. case, right, what does this suggest? Well, it suggests um, you know, one part of the often observed, and I observed this in my own empirical research, right, one part of the often observed compositional effect of the growth of female-headed households on inequality actually results from growing inequality within right, this subset of households and their polarization relative to other types of households. Right? So it's not just simply a story of you know, adding into the mix of households a set of, of households with an average, a low average income. Right? It's also in part a story of the divergence of, of those sorts of households and their polarization relative to other households containing children. So again... Right, um, you know, bottom line being that you know it's useful, I think, to occasionally just take a peek, right, at the data, right. Good advice generally, right. But take a peek at the data, look behind the summary measures, and think about exactly how the distribution of incomes changing as a way of um, thinking about rising inequality and about adjudicating between accounts thereof, right. Because this is a classic case where if we use the list data, for instance, right. Um, there are more explanatory factories than there are degrees of freedom, right? So we have to economize in some sense. Okay, um, thank you, and uh, thanks for being patient. I'm about five minutes over. Thanks. <laughs>